Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations to Vice Nation, your home for the greatest show on earth. And we know that show is medical device sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of Ford Raptor in times of Pontiac Aztec. Oh, yes, 2001. We'll never forget it. Quite possibly the ugliest vehicle ever made. If you're driving one right now and listening to the show, I am so sorry for your loss. I love this quote from an automotive journalist regarding the Aztec. It will always remain a visible scar, a cautionary tale of what not to do. Designed by committee, it never works. And then Walter White from Breaking Bad would come along and make it all cool again. Who knew? I hope you were having a great day. I hope you had a great week. I know I did. This week was particularly entertaining. I was dropping off some instruments and implants for a case in an ambulatory surgery center, and I walked up to the glass window to speak with the lady sitting behind the desk to get a code to get into the door. So I kindly asked her, I'd like to get into the door over there. Could you please give me the code? I've got to drop some instruments off. No answer. No acknowledgement. And I looked carefully. Okay, she's not wearing headphones. She's not typing on the computer. Um, let's just maybe didn't, didn't hear me. So I cranked it up two decibels and I can do that because I am a professional <laughs> and still no answer. I said, okay, two more decibels, took it up more. And I'm very aware there's a room full of people in this lobby and I'm just trying not to make a spectacle of myself, but to get her attention. And she just would not acknowledge me at all. This went on about five cycles and I thought, okay. It's getting ready to be game on. I'm just going to have to go 11 on the amp, go full spinal tap on her to just get her attention. I don't know what's going on. And then it hit me like a ton of lead. I looked to my right and I realized that the girl sitting in that first chair had the same clothes on as the girl in the front desk. And then I saw the illusion for what it was, her reflection put her in a perfect reverse scenario where she was sitting in that front desk looking at the computer. And of course, she was not on a keyboard. So that led me to believe she's not working at all. She's just staring at the computer. And her job right now is just to ignore me. And it was absolutely hilarious. It was so hilarious that I went and got the lady sitting in that front chair to come over and stand where I was standing. And then I dutifully sat in her chair and she was like, oh my gosh, you're at the front desk. I said, I know, right? It's crazy. And then I realized that's how they did the haunted house at Disney World. So it wasn't a total loss and we all had a good laugh about it. So that sets us up nicely about what we talked about last week about going where you're looking. A good friend of mine who's a kayaker echoed the sentiment we talked about. You go where you're looking, and if you're kayaking down a river, you don't look at the boulders because you're going to kayak right into one. You have to look at the space between the boulders. So we know that where our eyes go, we follow, and where are we going? It's where we're looking. And sometimes our eyes can play tricks on us, and we can think that somebody's sitting in a chair that is not. So we're going to open that up after our wonderful interview today. We're going to be talking with a surgeon that particularly inspired me 
Dr. Lanita Williamson, calling in from Modesto, California. I listened to her talk about a project she's working on on an ortho founders meeting and immediately was taken in and said, I want to make you aware of who she is and the work that she's doing because I know it will inspire you as well. So let's all give a great big Device Nation welcome to Dr. Lanita Williamson. Thank you for having me. Dr. Williamson, I developed a rep crush on you the first time we ever talked, and it is an honor to have some time with you today to talk about your life, your practice, your startup company. Let's get started by going back to Stanford, California. What put you on the path to medicine and ultimately a career as an orthopedic surgeon? Well, it really started out in my childhood, and I have a very solid memory of this. Um, there was a TV show on in the 60s, and it was called Julia. And an actress by the name of Diane Carroll was the lead actress. She's an African American nurse. And I was watching the show and, you know, telling my dad, hey, dad, when I grow up, I want to be a nurse like her, I want to be a movie star like her, you know, an actress. And he looked at me, and he has a nickname for me, Pai Mei. Uh, this is a whole other Southern story. Pai Mei, you know, you see what the nurse is doing. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. Well, she follows the doctor, and he gives her orders, and she carries them out. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, you know, you can be pretty like her and an actress like her, and you can be the doctor. At age four, you planted that seed. So, uh that was a very inspiring show. And, you know, from then on, I really knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was four. And then I think around sometime in junior high, some friends reminded me that I said I wanted to be a sports doctor, you know, work with athletes. And so as time went by, just kind of things sort of gelled into physician, uh, sports doctor, you know, being a little bit of an athlete, um, you get hurt and you, you see an orthopedic doctor, you get a cast. And my eyes were wide open to the first time I got a cast in that plaster of Paris and the smooth texture. And I, that was it. Brooklyn is a long ways from California. <laughs> uh, what put you on the other side of the planet, so to speak, uh, for your orthopedic residency? Yes. Um, after uh, doing undergrad and medical school at Stanford, transitioning to New York City was wide-eyed California girl, very naive, with not even a real winter coat, a California winter coat, which I discovered doesn't work in New York. Um, very different, very gritty, grimy, urban, uh, county hospital uh, where, you know, there weren't very many people between you and the patient. So lots of hands-on, lots of trauma. And back in the 80s, when I was in my residency, was when um, there was a serious drug war. Crack cocaine was taking off, and that really changed the uh, landscape of what orthopedic care was. It was gunshots and trauma and navigating the savvy uh, police versus the bad guys and the good guys. And, um, but I learned a lot of ballistics. I could tell you what kind of gun you were shot by, by looking at your x-ray and, you know, wow, I don't know if that's something to be proud of, but the best part about New York was just hands on elbows deep um, and just very 
intense uh, training that I, at the time, I sort of resented. I was, you know, gosh, I hate New York. This is so crazy. But looking back, it was the best thing that could have ever happened uh, in terms of volume and experience and leaving uh, that training confident in surgical skills and how to approach a problem, how to tackle it, you know, how to figure out the problem and how to solve the problem consistently with good results. So from there to Iowa, going back to the <laughs> middle of the country, uh, a sports fellowship. How was your how was your experience there? Mm. Once again, transitioning from crazy, grimy, gritty New York City to farmland, Central, you know, America. Uh, I mean, not Central, but you know, Central United States. Iowa was wonderful in that it was like a finishing school. They have one of the strongest orthopedic departments in the country. And so I was a little intimidated going there, coming from Brooklyn, just thinking I'd just been, you know, blood and guts for five years. But Iowa really taught me the fine points, the details, the style, the art of medicine. And uh, immersing into a little town of Coralville, Iowa, was just uh, a big transition from New York to go from, you know, looking over your shoulder and watching your back to, uh, Iowa, where you leave your keys in your car and you leave the car running when you go grocery shopping and you pay for gas after you've pumped your gas. And <laughs> so there were a lot of, you know, different things that were culture shock. But I left Iowa with really the learning the art of medicine and working with some famous and wonderful teachers and professors. And then my peer group of fellow residents and fellows are the movers and shakers of today. Um, so I, I feel proud of having that um, that experience. Dr. Williamson, I do know the way to San Jose, which is near <laughs> Modesta, California. Very few people are going to get that joke, uh, mm -hmm. which has been home of your practice for the past 24 years. So you're back in California and you've made mm -hmm. it your home. You, you love it there? Yes. I've been in Modesto since 1996, and it is home. It is a balance between Iowa and, I won't say New York, but I think my Iowa experience taught me that living in the city and the urban experience is nice to get in and out of, but I didn't really want to spend my life um, that way. And so I, uh, Modesto was a, a nice transition in knowing your neighbors and developing your practice based on word of mouth and outcomes and, you know, advertising um, media is really not the way people find me. Um, uh, the, the advertisement is in the quality of the work and, you know, patient uh, hobbling at church. And then, you know, a few months later, they're skipping down the aisle and, Oh, who, what happened? Did you have surgery? Who did it? And uh, the same thing with athletes and, and weekend warriors, um, over the years, just uh, establish, trying to establish a good reputation by having good outcomes and, and really enjoying my patients and visiting. And so for me, especially now with COVID, um, that visit with the patient is, is social. Once we get past the, the orthopedic part, it's visiting and how are the kids and, you know, uh, other items that people are so desperate to talk to other people about right now. That's good. I read a really interesting AOS article this morning detailing women in orthopedics. And although I think the numbers have increased since this article was published, about 15% 
of the fellowships in orthopedics were occupied by women. And I believe as of now, 5% of all active physicians in the orthopedic surgery space are women. Uh, What has been your experience as a female in historically a male-dominated field and any thoughts on these numbers I just cited? And- the orthopedics, neurosurgery, and cardiothoracic surgery or heart surgery are still male-dominated fields and what I would call the boy being in the boys' clubs. And pretty much every other specialty is, um, is more diverse. My, when I was in medical school and I found my passion for tinkering and orthopedics and I found the plaster of Paris, I remember from my childhood, I got honors in all of my rotations, but uh, the powers that be sort of steered me towards primary care and said, you know, girls like you should be in you know, pediatrics, OBGYN, family medicine. And I really wasn't encouraged to pursue ortho. So I spent an extra year as a transitional intern, just sort of trying to figure out what it was I was supposed to do. And in that extra year after medical school, it really solidified uh, my passion for um, orthopedics. And one of the chief residents, um, Jimmy Stredwick, um, who was a resident while I was a medical student, really encouraged me and pushed me and you know, gave me uh, great advice. And we're, we're still we're friends to this day. And as I've trained, gone about my training at the various levels, you know, there's med school, then there's the residency and the fellowship, um, a little bit of hazing, a little bit of, you know, really having to do, you know, twice, work twice as hard and be twice as good. All that is still, was still very true. Um, and so there were some days where it was really tough. And I think the thing that got me through it was mentors and allies and really gravitating towards somebody who was nice to me, who, who would, you know, lend a listening ear on a bad day or encouragement and, and staying connected with those mentors and then reaching back and being a mentor for people coming up behind me. And so the, the people who encouraged me and were my mentors over the years were really pivotal in helping me navigate tough days, tough weeks, um, in terms of, uh, you know, being the only woman in the room or the only woman of color in the room and and what that feels like when you walk into an audience or into a uh, convention center with thousands of orthopedic surgeons and very few who look like you. You shared with me the first time we talked about your admiration for a recent guest on Device Nation, Dr. Claudia Thomas. Just a remarkable mm woman, uh, how did you cross paths with her? Well, I'm not sure if we, we've met, but I don't think we've had any really extensive conversations. We've met in committees or in meetings. Um, but I heard about her, you know, day one of orthopedics, you know, you hear about the legends and I heard about her and her story and, uh, was inspired. Um, I think that there was some medical condition that changed her ability to to operate. And I felt sad that you could do all that training, become a pioneer, and then kind of have to limit your practice to some extent. So I was um, sad about that part, but hopeful in that, you know, being a surgeon and hands-on in the operating room was something that was very, very important to me. And then um, there's a gentleman um, named Augustus White, uh, the third, and who's an orthopedic surgeon, and I, I would run into him at meetings, and he would approach me friendly, shaking my hand, patting me on the shoulder, 
And I'd walk away like, why is this guy so nice? You know, wow, what's he, he's, you know, encouraged me to join committees and be part of, you know, groups. And then I kind of Googled some things and looked things up and I found out that he was the first African-American medical student at Stanford University. So that was where I went to med school and maybe he knew I went to Stanford, but I didn't know he went to Stanford. And so I look back at those times uh, when people were nice to me or were encouraging me and it's uh, not that common, not that often. And so when I get that uh, interaction, I really sort of, I really nurture it and pay attention to it. I've read about uh, Dr. White, the uh, Jackie Robinson of orthopedics is, is what I've read. He's got a book coming out that Dr. Uh, Thomas made me aware of called Overcoming. I look forward to, uh, to checking that out. He seems like he's just, a, just an amazing, amazing person. I read his book about six months ago. He wrote uh, previously called Seeing Patients. Um, and it was um, uh, just kind of his story. And he really was tackling some topics that are really just current events today, speaking about um, unconscious bias in healthcare. And for somebody to tackle that in the 70s and 80s and, you know, 90s, and it's very interesting because it's really something that's kind of coming full circle with society today. So that that was very inspiring to read his book and sort of nod at some of the stories that I could that he told that I uh, understood and had sort of experienced myself. I've become more aware recently of the Gladden Society, of which I believe you are a member. Uh, tell us about it. Um, I don't want to misquote, but I think J. Robert Gladden was the first orthopedic surgeon, uh, African American male, um, and. Uh, when I first became an orthopedic surgeon and a part of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, I gravitated to the group and was involved quite a bit. I, I'm not as deeply involved now, uh, mainly a member, as just being a member, um, but they are very helpful at, for me, when I was younger orthopedic surgeon, at connecting me with resources people, mentors, um, opportunities to learn and grow. Um, and so I, I felt that it was very, very helpful uh, in my early training. And now that I'm further along in my training, I'm sort of doing a little bit more reaching back to try to stay involved with uh, helping younger orthopedic surgeons come up. Before we get too far away from it, because it's really distracting me right now, I'm wondering, what is it? What is it? Pi May. <laughs> the, only, the, the only thing I've ever heard in my life about Pi May was the Kung Fu Master. And I don't know if that's oh, who we're talking gosh. about here, but what, what is your, what's the Pi well, May? When I was a little girl, um, that was a nickname that my dad gave me. And my entire family, that's the only name they knew. They didn't know Lenita. They didn't know Lenita Williamson. They didn't know Dr. <laughs> Williamson. It's Pi May. So my dad uh, was born in Arkansas. I grew up down there. And I think he, he says it. He says that I was sweet as pie and that everybody down south has a May, you know, Sally May, Bobby May. Right. Uh, as a middle name slash nickname. But May is a common middle name or uh, add addition to a name. And so he, I don't know how he came up with it, but Pi May. And to this day, I answer to it. And there are a lot of cousins that 
don't even know Lanita. They it, even on Facebook, hey, Pime, and other people are like, what is that? So I first I was embarrassed by it, but now I just it's a term a term of endearment. I love that stuff. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very true. The the art of that middle name. Uh, it's a Southern tradition, no doubt. Mm-hmm. I, I know many of them. So let's talk about your uh, your practice today. I mean, uh, what does it look like? What are you doing these days? What do you love to do? I'm sort of at a phase where I've uh, really plateaued with volume and uh, trauma. And I'm really on the phase of... Um, doing the things that I love to do. I don't want to say cherry picking. I don't want that to come off the wrong way, but I'm really just focusing my practice on the things that I've trained to do that I love to do. And uh, things like trauma and emergencies, I really don't get involved with, but I am focusing more on sports injuries, work-related injuries, the walking wounded, the, the guy that tore his Achilles playing on Thanksgiving turkey football, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, so I, I'm sort of uh, slowing down a little bit to make time for other pursuits. But um, I see patients a, f- a couple days a week, and then I, I, I do surgeries at uh, any one of the surgery centers or hospitals in the area. But with COVID, um, I, I would say that I am a little bit more cautious, and I have slowed down my volume based on, you know, how the incidence of, of the infection in our community. So when there's a big surge, I've sort of stopped operating. And when things are better, I'm very careful and operate on certain people at certain locations. But I'm I'm winding down a little bit because I'm you know working on some other interests um, and passions that I have, and so I need to find that balance with time. I do have a sports question for you, only because I was listening to Dr. Sigmund's Ortho Show, and he was talking mm-hmm. with uh, Don Buford about some orthobiologics, and and I was thinking about the the rotary cup repair, and mm-hmm. it's kind of a been a feast or famine procedure over the years. Um, I was just wondering any thoughts uh, on taking some bone marrow aspirate concentrate and and jamming it into that part of the body. I'm seeing more and more talk about orthobiologics and some of these sports-related injuries. And I I was just wondering what your thoughts are. Is it a good idea, bad idea? The science is still not there or it is there? Just curious. Well, I think orthobiologics is driven by money and companies right now. And a lot of the data is generated by companies who've created the products in the market. I think that the orthopedic surgeons and the other providers who use the product and and their um, magazines and journals haven't created the research, um, you know, prospective double blind, you know, good science that can prove a lot of things. So there's lots of sort of loose papers out there, but not a lot of very scientifically done peer-reviewed journals. Um, so my reach into the biologics is uh, sort of what's what's at hand. If a person's having a rotator cuff surgery and wants to inject PRP, that's um, first do no harm. That's bl- blood and uh, serum from the patient's own body to be injected into the back into their own body to aid in the healing of a torn rotator cuff when I repair it. And that's such a, an easy reach that I'm comfortable doing it. Um, but to find the paper that says that's 100% 
better than any other choice that's still out, you know, still pending. So I try to not do costly things that aren't well scientifically documented to be helpful. You know, one thing that you brought up, and I don't know why my memory goes this direction, but there was a book I read many years ago uh, from a potential Supreme Court justice, and he talked about one of the challenges in law is you don't want to decide first and reason backwards. That you you have to let the uh, the law take you to that decision and not decide to make it and then figure uh-huh. figure your way back out of it. And when you talked about medicine and devices and all that, I thought you know there is some of that in the space that technology comes along and then it's trying to fit the science to make the product work, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's how I think some of the vendors and the companies look at it. But I look at it this way. Um, if I have a surgical uh, technique for, let's say, an anterior cruciate or an ACL repair, and it is working, and my patients go back to sports, and they're playing at a professional level or a college level, and they have a good outcome, I'm not going to change what I'm doing, even if something new comes out. If I have a great outcome, hey, what's, what's better than that? However, there are a few things that I do that I just... Ugh, you know, don't love it. And so those are the surgical techniques and uh, procedures that I continue to look at what's new and what's, you know, what's out there to improve outcomes and get it to a point where, you know, I I love the outcome. And so I've kind of gone with the philosophy, if it ain't broken, you know, if this ain't fix it, you know, the the saying, (laughs) if it ain't broken, you don't need to fix it. But there, it's also uh, tempered with the fact that you want to kind of keep up with what's going on. And then I have other colleagues who, I um, in surgery, try the newest thing every week. And it's great because they're enjoying a new, you know, new technique. But it can be frustrating because the staff can't keep up with, okay, we did it this way last week. Now we're doing it another way. And where are the implants and the items? So I, I tend to um, be a little bit more open-minded with new things when it's a uh, a technique that I would like to improve upon. So tell me about a couple gadgets in sports medicine, transosseous tunnels, metal, peak anchors, all suture anchors. What makes the most sense in your hands? The problem with the rotator cuff is um, the, the muscle pulls off the bone and you're trying to get a muscle or what I would tell some patients, the meat to attach to the bone. And when I'm explaining the surgery to a preoperative patient, that's the first thing they ask. Well, how do you attach that tendon into the bone? And so that's where anchors come in. And um, there are many types of anchors that attach or fixate into the bone and then have sutures or stitches that you use to sew the muscle. Um, I have really not, I'm not in love with piece versus metal or any specific um type of material, I'm more, again, use a product, have good outcomes and stick with it. Um, I think that the newer thing um, with a failed rotator cuff or a person's had surgery and, it, and, and they've retorn it for whatever reason is that, you know, to try to fix it the same way is not always the best idea. And so you need in your toolbox other ways of fixing it. And so sewing the tendon into bone through holes in the bone or drill holes or tunnels 
is a very old technique and in fact was one of the original techniques that then lost favor and is now coming back. And so the transosseous um, repair is one that I use for a revision or a redo, but was one that I was trained on and learned, you know, in the 90s. That was the main way that uh, I fixed them until the anchors came out. The explosion of anchors came out. Do you like venturing down to the ankle and doing some work down there? Yeah. Oh, yes, I was in. The, I was all over the ankle yesterday. Yeah, my uh, my daughter's had just over and over sprained ankles and has had a brostrum done, and that whole world is fascinating to me. Of just these chronic rolling the ankles and how do you get it to resolve? So, and I think that the high ankle sprain is the one that everyone hates to hear about um, versus a regular ankle sprain, and those are. Those are frustrating, and when I work with athletes with those injuries, you have to do a little bit more hand-holding, and there, it takes more time and more patience to heal from those, and it's hard when they want to um, you know, get on it right away, and they really aren't allowed to medically, but when they try to use it, they can't, and so it's not me saying, hey, you're not ready yet. They can stand on it and walk on it and know it's not ready. So those, those can take weeks or months and sometimes need surgery. Why do I just not see that many ACL reconstructions done anymore? I mean, I remember a time when it was a fairly common procedure, and I don't know if this is just totally anecdotal. It may just be my little neck of the woods, but uh, it, it just seemed like I, I started to see less of them. I would say I didn't see that many this year because I don't think people are participating in sports, but it's very, very common in female athletes. In my region, there's a lot of soccer right. and men and women get ACL tears and women's basketball are the two uh, most common groups of ACL uh, injuries that I see. But in terms of sports this year, it really didn't happen. So a bust on ACLs this year. What's the latest and greatest on that front? I remember when it was hamstrings and it was uh, allografts. And uh, wh where are we at on that procedure? That procedure uh, changes course uh, every year or two um, when the leaders and the university settings, uh, you know, publish a new technique, then people gravitate towards it. I believe some people are doing a flip cut and they're doing, you know, the anatomic meaning trying to put it exactly where it was. Um, but there are many ways to do the ACL. And I think um, whatever gives you the best results in your hands or your training is just the way to go. I personally am old school. I still do what they call bone, patella tendon bone autograft, which is basically fixing the torn ligament by taking out the old one that's no good and splicing it or placing new tissue in there. And the tissue I take is from the front of the patient's own knee. Now, when other doctors do it, sometimes they take it from a cadaver, uh, the, the graft, and take a cadaver graft and put it inside a patient's knee. And that surgery is a little bit quicker, but it's slower to heal. And some people do the hamstring and there's good and, you know, bad, not won't say bad, there's pros and cons for each technique. I, I just happen to do the one that has given me good results over decades with my patients going, you know, to high level play. And also when you take a poll at an orthopedic meeting, you hear these professors speak about this great, the latest and greatest. But when you have a show of hands of how people fix them in the audience of thousands, 
you'll still see that the majority of bread and butter practicing orthopedic surgeons still do sort of the technique they learned or uh, they're not always, uh, they're learning about the new ways of doing things, but they're not always incorporating it in their practices. One of the biggest catastrophes, uh, what do they call it, disastoplasties that I ever saw in my career was uh, an ACL procedure and they harvested the patella tendon and the tech just accidentally was clearing a bunch of stuff off of his uh, table and threw the graft in the garbage. Mm. <laughs> and that was a oh, bad yeah. that was a bad day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the raging issue at these sports meetings these days? I mean, what's uh, what's getting all the buzz? Well, you mentioned a, f- a few things. I think that people are on on the fence with biologics. Um, I think that in shoulder arthroscopic surgery, uh, the controversies are what to do with the biceps tendon. Um, the tendon in the front of your um, arm is usually involved with a rotator cuff tear. And over the decades, diagnosing it and then treating it has evolved. And so I think that the, that's one of the um, raging controversies in, uh, in shoulder surgery. And you get a get a few people in the room, you're going to get a few different opinions and um, strong opinions about um, how to treat injuries to the biceps and labrum um, in in the shoulder. It was a personal goal of mine to, at some point in my life, stop calling it a tendinesis and call it a tenodesis. And (laughs) I I finally got that out of my lexicon. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But we still know what you meant. Yeah, I would true. never, I would never correct you. I just kind of nod and go with it. Somebody else might, but yeah, I, just, you're I, know, awesome. I know what you're, I know what you're trying to say. Yeah, you're awesome that way. So we <laughs> met through an incredible organization that I am honored to be part of, OrthoFounders. And for my listeners, check it out, OrthoFounders.com. A group of roughly forty entrepreneurial surgeons uh, and a rep with incredible ideas at various stages of development. You are one of those entrepreneurial surgeons with an exciting project, ProcedureCard.com. You had some great news that you shared with the group the last time we got together. Tell us all about it. I want to say about four or five years ago, I was in surgery at a hospital. I've been on staff for decades, and I started doing a carpal tunnel surgery, which is a very simple surgery on the wrist to relieve pressure from the nerve. And uh, I started the surgery and I asked for certain instruments. They didn't have them. They had to run out and go and get them. And then when I looked up, they had instruments ready for me for fixing a broken ankle, metal screws and plates and drills. And I, I, what are you doing? We don't need any of that. Well, I know, doctor, but it's on your card. So the card they, the procedure card, the card they had in um, that they were bringing up was called a surgical preference card. And like a recipe for baking a cake, every surgery has a recipe. There's a list of tools and instruments that every surgeon has for every procedure that they do. And from surgeon to surgeon, my carpal tunnel card might be a little bit different from Joe's carpal tunnel card, mostly the same, but a little bit different. And so every facility, every hospital, every surgery center and the whole planet has a list of the surgical preferences. The problem is 
it's archaic. It's pencil and paper. It's scraps of three by five cards. It's on an outdated computer. It's not accessible. And the most important thing is the surgical staff doesn't have access to it to update it. So when I come in and say, hey, I went to the orthopedic meeting. I'm going to fix this rotator cuff this new way. Okay, great. And we struggle through it because there's some new steps. But it was fun and it worked. And I say, okay, I want to do it that way from now on. Well, the next day, the next week, the next month, six months later, I still am not getting an updated card. And they're still pulling the old instruments and the old tools, which are then discarded, unused, at cost. Or the staff, the nurse during the operation is leaving the patient under anesthesia to go and get this and get that. And so the number one door openings in surgery are for people to go get supplies. And that's when I tapped out on it. I was going to say I was going to call BS on it, but I did more than that. So I sat down with a developer and um, a coder and a guy from LA who came up and watched some surgery and said, oh, wow, I see the problem. You know, after he kind of swooned and swirled a little bit in surgery and turned green, but he, he was a trooper in that he saw the problem and that allowed him to help me create a procedure card, which is taking the surgical preference card, putting them online on the cloud, so that the surgical teams can access them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere, anytime. And the beauty of it is having an accurate card for every surgery. So there's no running around. There's no wasted equipment that is then charged to the patient for instruments and tools that were opened and not used. And surgery is more efficient and the patient's safer. The nurse isn't leaving the room to run around and get like who bakes a cake and starts, goes to the grocery store to get milk while they're stirring? You know, you get those ingredients ahead of time. So procedure card allows the team the ability to create an accurate card so surgery is done efficiently. And updating that card is what um, the app really is, is, is uh, known for because when I do a new a surgery a new way, Immediately in real time, they can make changes so that the very next surgery, an hour later or the next week or across the street the next day, has all the new items and tools. And sharing them from one hospital to another allows the consistency in that, oh, I did this yesterday at this hospital. I really want to do it the same way here. Well, we don't have your card. Oh, gosh. All right. So, anyway, three years later, it's a global company. It's growing. Um, I use it all the time and I have many users in in the United States as well that uh, use it to um, keep their surgical preference card system updated. I love it. There was a great line from Pirates of the Caribbean when uh, he was uh, Captain Barbosa, I believe, was talking about the Pirates Code. And he said the code is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. And that just reminds me of the preference card, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like it's so many places. It's, it's uh, kind of a living document that's never completely settled and... Uh, when things are not right on that card, they just seem to, you go from case to case to case, and two months later, it's still not right. Well, you've seen it in surgery, I believe, you know, uh, helping out in, in, in the work that you do. The repercussions or the consequences of not having an accurate card 
you know, it's it's tough. So how can we help you here at Device Nation? Do you think this is something that's going to be best served by the surgeons who listen, asking for it and putting it in part of their surgical flow? Or is it going to be the, the reps that listen, telling uh, their staff about it when they see things arise that are preference card related? What's, what's the best strategy to, to help you get the word out? Well, well, I'm glad you asked because over the years and with market research, you know, being a surgeon, I started out with talking to my surgeons and my friends and colleagues, and they they don't care how they get a good card. They just want one. So they'll, you know, yell and scream and throw things if they don't have what they, not all of them, if they don't have what they need, it's not good, but they're not the agents of change. And I think that what I'm finding is the surgical administrators of the hospitals and the surgery centers, and even some of the vendors see the cost savings and see the, you know, lack of less drama with having the cards. And I think in this day and age, money talks. And so when you can convince a hospital or surgery center that you're saving money by using this, that, that wakes people up. And I, I quote some research that was done at UCSF University, uh, California, San Francisco, in the neurosurgery department a few years ago, they added up, uh, you know, and I think it was a three, six month period of the, instru- the the tools and equipment that they opened up for surgery, they didn't use and they threw away. And I think it came up to $6.7 million. And that was just in one surgery specialty. And I want to say maybe over a year, but just one. And it didn't capture all the surgeries and all the doctors and all the things. But to to tell somebody and convince them of cost savings, it's hard harder to do. But once they hear from their staff and the uh, other team members that, yes, we open this up every time and she never uses it. Okay. Um, how much did that cost? Well, we don't, you know, it isn't really tracked because it's put on the bill and the patient may or not, may or may not see it, but when you don't feel that cost yourself, I think that's, um, you know, when you do have to fill the cost, I think it's an agent for change. So my audience, my market is um, hospital administrators um, um, and the staff who are boots on the ground with needing a good card to get their job done. Done a great job with the website, procedurecard.com. It looks really good. Uh, So what you're basically allowing the hospital to do is they can log into this site. Is that where their card is stored or is it a separate? Most users uh, log on to the website, create an account, and just start using it. Okay. They can add um, different staff members by sending them an email invite. So you create, uh, you can add more users to your team uh, by email. And uh, then when they get the email invite, they log in and they're now a part of it. The key, though, I think in terms of um, uh, security is that there are different levels of permission. So majority of the users just can look at a card, read a card, print a card, see a card, touch a card. But then there's a next level of users who can edit and, you know, create and manipulate the cards. And that's a lot fewer people. And then finally, the super users or the administrators are the people who can, you know, add or subtract users or what some people might say, play God. Um, but uh, I think that's really helpful so that there isn't just a random onslaught of people making changes. 
to things all the time. And I think the fun part about tech is that you put it out there and then you get your user feedback. Hey, we really like this. Oh, this sucks, you know, and you can talk to your developer and change. And so I like the interactiveness and how dynamic it is when you you have a feature that no one's using, isn't really, you know, popular and you can sort of phase it out and you can hear, you know, feedback of what they really love. And then, you know, improve upon that, go in that direction. So I, I think that's a, my favorite part. And I was onboarding a, a new uh, uh, company uh, recently. That's what we would call the enterprise level, which means they can ask for all the custom bells and whistles they want. And um, I think that that, that um, interaction was helpful because they said, Hey, we want to change this or we want these categories or how about that? And, I can't be closed-minded and say, this is my company and this is how it's done. You really have to do customer service. You really have to listen and then take that to your coder and, you know, make it happen. So it's like magic because they say, I want these features and then the features are on their card. Have you had a notable role model or mentor through this uh, entrepreneurial aspect of your career? I mean, there's a woman, Ari Hori, who um, was helpful in guiding me about how to grow the company and how to look at tech from a business standpoint, because I was, Oh, I'm a doctor. Here's a company. Everyone needs, needs it, you know, kind of sort of naive in my approach. And I think that the people in the tech space um, look at things very differently. Their timetable is different um, and how to prioritize uh, working in the technology space has been the piece that I've learned the most about. So just having the healthcare background and solving a problem is not enough. So some of the people that have uh, guided me have helped me navigate the technology space and orthopedic founders and, and a group I'm in, Founders Network, are all sort of peer mentoring. You know, you learn something, you share it with somebody and they, you know, it's sort of Uh, open space for sharing of ideas and networking and pushing and pulling each other along. Yeah, I read about the Founders Network. What is that? It's a group based in, well, started in the Bay Area by Kevin Holmes, um, and it's a peer mentoring uh, group um, of really quite impressive group of younger people who start a company and then exit with, you know, millions of dollars selling it to Google and selling it to you know, other giant companies. So they're the big uh, fish that are uh, doing, uh, you know, lots of startups and serial startups and exiting and starting another and branching out. Um, uh, and they are working in all sorts of areas of, of technology from coding to development to sales. And um, I found that I was the old lady in the room and, you know, I walk in there and they're like, who's this old person who's not young and cool like us so I just <laughs> I, I own my I own it I just come in the room hey hi you know and uh but very a little bit intimidating because you know I'm a surgeon um and they I don't know how they see that but I don't try to assume that I know more than anybody else I just hang out and just share my story and I found that actually some of my colleagues in the Founders Network who have you know medical type of devices or uh things that they're trying to pursue, actually, we can network a lot more and they can sort of see the perspective of the the physician or the provider because most of the people in the healthcare tech space are looking at a wearable or something to monitor their heart rate. 
and they look at it from a patient or customer focused healthcare perspective. And there are more ways to look at a device than just the customer, consumer, and money. Um, you know, how does it get in the consumer's hand? Do they, does their doctor prescribe it? You know, what are the healthcare providers take on this, on the item and how could that be a traction model? So I've helped some of my founders network friends um, looking at the traction in the healthcare space. So it's, it's mutual. I like it. It's different. On your LinkedIn profile, uh, let's see, software CEO, check, mm-hmm. orthopedic surgeon, check, <laughs> Blurred Mermaid. I, I had to look at that a couple times, and uh, I've, I've, I've seen it a million times before, but it never stopped me in my tracks until I was getting ready to talk to you. Uh, enlighten me. Blurred is a term I found about a couple years ago, and I thought it was fun. Um, at, I went to Stanford, and I think I pri- we all pride ourselves in being nerdy, but cool, but nerdy, but smart. And so being a nerd I actually want to make cool because some, especially with the younger people, they just think the nerd is not cool and you, you don't want to be smart. You want to be cool. And, and some people actually downplay their intelligence or their, their work in school so that they're not they're with the cool kids and not with the nerdy kids. Right. So nerd is, uh, uh, I don't know, acronym. I don't know what it is, but for black nerd. So B-L-E-R-D, blurred. Gotcha. So I don't know. I saw that phrase somewhere and I just thought it was, you know, conversation piece so i I, i'm a nerd well we got the we got the nerd part we got the blurred Mm -hmm. part mermaid uh love scuba diving um advanced open water diver i dive in maui uh, every two or three months i'm on molokini crater with my friends so uh, i took up scuba diving as a challenge it was something that um i was sort of afraid of in one of those you know boxes i wanted to check that a conquering of fear and my best friend got certified and went up the ladder and is like an advanced instructor, like top of the food chain. And so I, I it's my, I love it. I used to love it. And I was in Hawaii <laughs> <laughs> and the water was so clear and I could see so far down that it almost mm-hmm. made me have vertigo. Like I felt like I was mm-hmm. high in the air, which I wasn't. And then mm-hmm. I hit just solid blue, and, and I realized I was in water that was just crazy deep. And mm. for some bizarre reason, my body said, mm-hmm. nope, we're done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my wife kind of popped mm-hmm. my bubble on shore. She said, you know, the, the thing that kept you flotationally stable in two feet of water is the same thing that had you there in 100 feet. And I thought, well, you know what? That logic is true. But at the time, okay. just, mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there is there some connection between people that have height issues and diving and feeling like you're high? No, I, don't, I think it's more like a claustrophobia that gives people fear. And I think that the safety, the number one safety in diving it's having a buddy, having a plan, staying with your buddy, executing the plan, and knowing how to signal and what to do in an emergency. And so you, for me, I don't dive with just anybody. I don't, you know, random strangers, hey, let's dive. I need to know you. <laughs> My life is in your hands. And so I, I dive with just a trusted few. And because of their emphasis on safety, I, that part of the fear and depth and concern is not um, a thing for me. And my friend, who's this, you know, master scuba instructor, always is throwing equipment at me. So I have two computers and I have all these 
bells and whistles and cool. uh, redundancy, just like flying an airplane and then a lot of other things and even surgery. There's that redundancy and there's that checklist. So I think that that checklist of when you're about to dive and that checklist of when you're about to do surgery sort of have parallels for me. I would expect nothing less from a blurred mermaid. So what is the <laughs> coolest place that you've ever been to? What's, what's your coolest dive? Fiji. Fiji. Fiji, the shark dive that I didn't think was going to be a shark dive. My friends all went on a shark dive and they intentionally went to the places where the sharks hang out and they feed them food and they swim around and they take pictures and they come back all crazy. And I was like, nope, I don't need to dive with a shark. Well, about two days later, we did a, another dive and we went down. And it was so beautiful. I was like, this is great. And then we got down deep and I'm like, wait a minute, this is the shark dive. And we did the dive and I totally freaked out and I came back up and I said, wait, that was a shark dive. And, the, and then the dive master said, well, if we're not feeding the sharks, it's not officially a shark dive. But if they happen to be there when we're there, then, you know, you're lucky. And I <laughs> was like, so I accidentally did the shark dive without knowing that wow. I was doing it. Um, but it's hard to descend when you have bull sharks and tiger sharks circling below you. And the, and the, and the guide is saying, Okay, let's go down. And there's something about my uh, elevator that wouldn't let me, <laughs> me go down. Oh, yeah. But beautiful. The people are beautiful. The land is pristine. It's very culturally, you know, learn a lot about people who've never moved, who have been in the same place for so long, and the strength of their communities and their um, values. It's, it's really neat to immerse yourself in a different culture. Not that this will ever happen to me, but when I remember <laughs> actually being somewhat fascinated by the whole thing, it was the bang stick. If if you got close encounters uh, with a shark, what's the what's the latest technology on that front? If you have a uh, up close and personal, my friends and I, we like the white tip reef shark, and some of us feel like they're like your puppy dog. Um, mm -hmm. So when I'm diving with certain people, they're actively looking for a shark and certain sharks. So when we see the white tip reef shark, I still sort of panic and hang back, but my friends rush up because they see it like as a puppy dog. And I, I still haven't gotten that comfortable with a shark underwater. Um, and I really don't have any experience with any other type of shark and don't plan on it. I don't have a bang stick. Um, I think they would sense my fear and eat me up if they wanted to. And I really don't have a say or a choice. Sure. So I, but I don't run into anything other than the cute, Fun, nice sharks. <laughs> is there such a thing? I don't think there is, Doctor. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so either. When I had a motorcycle, it seemed like everybody felt obligated to share a story with me of somebody who died horrifically <laughs> mm -hmm. as a result of having mm -hmm. a motorcycle. I don't know what that was all about. But mm -hmm. uh, in a similar vein, I feel obligated mm -hmm. to tell you one scuba story. <laughs> uh, uh -oh. A surgeon that I worked with went with a buddy of his, and they were on a dive, and it was later in the evening, and they went down, and they came back up, and their boat had slipped anchor and was gone. And they had to spend the night out there in the middle of the the area right near the ocean where the bay opened up into it uh, all night long, just floating. And mm. uh, they were found the next day. Uh, and I think there was a movie not too long after that that was similar uh, in context to that. Um, that mm -hmm. was just crazy. I, I couldn't imagine that happening to me. Yeah, there are, there are stories where they uh... – 
you know, don't do the head count when people get back on the boat. I think that was one of the famous movies. And so when I'm joking, when we, you know, when we get on the boat and get off the boat, I'm really paying attention to the head count and who's on and who's not and the safety briefings. Um, so that, that, that safety is important to me. Um, and I don't, I don't want to be stranded on the Great Barrier Reef, uh, you know, with the head count off and not you know, knowing that I'm not in my hotel for a couple of days. So it's about safety and redundancy and people knowing where you are. You truly inspired me on, on one particular thing. When we talked last, you made me aware of the movie 20 Feet from Stardom. You know a movie's amazing when you think about it for like a week or two after. Mm-hmm when they introduced the girl who sang background for that Rolling Stones song, I didn't know she was singing about murder. (laughs) Yeah. You can't really tell the words. And I just thought it was an interesting, you know, backstory to all the songs we love and we know by heart and we know the lyrics and the melody. And then to hear the story of how that song was created. And, uh, it really just, uh, rang true with me. And I really, I, I'm a music person. And so, uh, That was a a movie I wanted to share with you. Speaking of stories, Dr. Williamson, I'm excited about your story and the future of the story called ProcedureCard.com. Again, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, encourage all my listeners to check it out. So great job on that. And I'm very thankful you came on Device Nation to share your life with us. It's just really been a pleasant reminiscing on the the journey. And I've just got a smile on my face and my heart right now because I look back at All the things, you know, from age four uh, to, you know, today. And uh, I think a lot of it was uh, the inspiration and the love and support of my my father, who, you know, I was a daddy's girl. And uh, he really just always gave me that. Didn't know what I was doing a lot. Didn't know what I was studying. uh, But he just always gave me that unconditional support of you know, letting me be the tinkerer at the house and fixing things that were broken. And so he, he knew he knew before I knew that what I was going to be doing. So I, I think that uh, that relationship was uh, really pivotal. That is so sweet. Pie May. <laughs> you are, God, you are sweet I as pie. I shouldn't have said it. Now I'm going to regret that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks again. Thank you for letting me uh, go down memory lane. Absolutely. It's all about branding, you know? I mean, if mm-hmm, Scott Sigmund mm-hmm. can make a, a brand out of his hair, then uh, then we can make a brand out of Pime, right? Well, you know what? It's already started. I mentioned that story to a group of women tech makers that I'm an organ- another organization I'm a part of. And they uh, awarded me and gave me a cape. And it's a, you know, like a superwoman cape, Superman cape. And it's got, you know, Pime on the back of the cape. And I'm like, oh, God, how did they find out? But you know what? I put that cape on from time to time when I'm feeling good or when I'm feeling low, just when I feel like it. And it's just a fun little silly reminder. But uh, but also understanding that people are hearing my story and listening, you know, and uh, see um, the pride I have in, you know, being Pime. Thank you so much, Dr. Lanita Williamson. What an awesome interview. Was it obvious I enjoyed that? I did, and I know you did as well. I know many of you woke up this morning and thought to yourself, you know what? There's a good chance I'm going to get to hear from a blurred mermaid before the day is out. Well, 
There you go. Knock that one off your list. What an awesome conversation. I did some research on scuba diving and found out that a lot of what goes on in their world is very similar to ours on the PADI website, the Professional Association of Dive Instructors. They talk about the four E's, education, learning new skills, experience, experiencing something new, and then sharing that equipment learning how to use uh, the dive equipment, and then the environment, learning about a new world. And I thought those four E's translate to medical device so well, don't they? Uh, The education aspect of this job, the experience, experiencing something new, something that a lot of people don't get to experience in what we do day to day, the equipment, learning how to use that and then apply it, and then the environment, learning about a new world, the operating room, the clinic, the hospital purchasing departments, the warehouse, all these new environments that we have to work in and navigate every day. It's what makes it awesome. And I really love what she said about a dive buddy. This was off of one of the scuba websites. Two heads are better than one if you end up in a situation where you need to make a decision. Will you panic or utilize your resources? Dive equipment failure can cause that. All of a sudden, a rapid ascent and you don't know what's going on. And in your panic, you make the wrong decision. Dive buddy, someone you trust is critical to functioning as a scuba diver safely. Well, if we are going to function as medical device reps safely, you have to have a dive buddy. Now, some of you already have that, and that is awesome. Someone you can share your history, your heroes, your heartaches, your hopes with. Someone you could subject your journey to and say, look, this is where I'm looking. And you know that where you're looking is where you're going. Does this make sense? What do you think about that? We have to, especially with these bullet point decisions that come our way. Do I hire this person? Do I change companies? Do I add this product to my bag? Do I move to another territory and start over? Is there really a person sitting at the front desk or is it just a reflection? You know, the beauty of having a dive buddy is that you're looking forward, but they can also be looking behind you and seeing what's coming up. So in front of you is this this beautiful thing, but the dive buddy says no. There is a shark coming up behind you, and it is definitely not one of the cuddly ones. Now, one thing I distinctly remember hearing my mom say is that you don't trust strangers. And I know that if I'm going to subject my life to someone, direction issues, bullet point issues, it's got to be somebody I trust. And that takes intentional cultivation. You know, we need that as device reps and we need that just as people, right? Forget this job for a second. We just need that across the board because life is going to deal you a lot of things. And sometimes it's a coral reef and it's a beautiful thing. And other times there's a white tip shark and it's kind of cute, but kind of dangerous. And then sometimes there's a great white bearing down on you. And I like to have those voices in place before that event. Uh, so hopefully I can avoid avoid losing a leg in the process. So let's wrap this up with two easy bullet points. Number one, be a buddy. Dr. Williamson said that in her mentor experiences that finding people that were just kind and encouraging was just not that common. You know what? Be that person to people around you. There's a lot of people around you that are behind you that haven't gone through what you've gone through and they need your help. Reach out to them. Be kind 
and be encouraging to them and look for opportunities to help them. It's amazing how many times you find the answer for your own directional questions just in that exchange. Number two, find a buddy. Use your networks, LinkedIn, Doc Plus Social. Reach out to me on Doc Plus Social. We are all about bringing people together. So again, a huge thank you to Dr. Williamson, and a huge thank you to you for listening. Appreciate you all very much. So as we go into this week, you know, this is the exact soundtrack that I would hear in my mind whenever my mom would call me by my full name. Nothing good was getting ready to happen. But as we go into this week, let's all make a special effort to be uncommon, be kind and encouraging, be that dive buddy to those around us that need that, and be looking for the same. But most importantly, let's all be safe. Nation.